Computer, initialize Holosuite. and welcome to Random Trek Review, the podcast where we analyze, discuss, and review a randomly selected Star Trek film. This will be the second half of our uh, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock review, and uh, I seem to recognize the my, my friend here, um, Andrew. Your name is Andrew. <laughs> Indeed, Matt, and yes, right? and I am about uh, three quarters of the way through my popcorn here. And uh, ready to kind of hit the uh, the second half of Search for Spock, as usually is the case. The popcorn never seems to last as long as the movie. So, um, I mean, I, I feel like this movie's what an hour forty five, and we left off right around like the hour mark. I want to say, roughly, yeah. It was right after the uh, the Grissom got blown up, and uh, we talked a little bit about a scene where David talks about how he bent the rules, and that's pretty much where he left yeah and that's about the 60 minute mark so the last 45 minutes here i'm kind of excited to jump into because it's where all the good stuff happens yeah and i mean the well, search for is, is definitely one of those ones that maybe gets slagged on a little bit or a lot and i actually really enjoyed the first half so i'm i'm, I'm super excited to jump into the second half um or the second court last quarter whatever you want to call it um and and see how they finish this one up Let's let's dive right back in. Let's not keep people in suspense here. All right. Now, not to start off on the downer moment, um, I do have to say that uh, the Genesis planet, uh, as we see it here in Search for Spock, especially after the Klingons show up and we get a little bit more taking place on it, it looks kind of bad. <laughs> or at least I thought it looked kind of bad. Uh, you had talked about the fact that uh, it was... Um, filmed on studio, maybe in the parking lot, I want to say, when we talked about it last time. Should this have been maybe a actual location? There are tons of places in California where you can find trees and bushes uh, that would have done and served this very well. Uh, do you kind of wish that maybe they had done it on location, and did you think it looked as bad as I did? Well, but if they did it on location, there would have, wouldn't have been any of those giant matte paintings that you love so much. Wow, that is true. But I feel like you could have maybe blended it a little bit better than what we get here. Well, yeah, you know, it, it was something that I didn't really think about a lot because I was just sort of engrossed in the movie. But when you mention it now, it there were parts of it that looked pretty subpar, I would say. Yeah, and I mean, because it is a movie and we've seen, like, even the original series used to go to on location all the time just seemed like didn't really need to do it like it would have been very easy to do uh like a quick on location stuff especially with courage when he's kind of like going through the the fawns or the ferns or whatever it is um it really seems like they kind of slapped it together and i i give the pass whenever we get like the star trek caves but in this situation it really just was like this is a movie you know, we've all spent our good hard money to go see it. I don't know that it really holds up 
especially since my memory from Wrath of Khan was that it was slightly better in that movie, uh, especially at the end when they have the uh, coffin land on like the fully formed Genesis planet. It looked really cool and like really lush. This yeah. is like a little bit eh. But anyway, I don't want to really kind of go on about that because it is a a negative thing to start off. So let's kind of maybe talk about what happens on the Genesis planet. And the first thing that we see is uh, the Klingons have now uh, come down to the planet. And there's that really strange worm scene where uh, Kurge basically comes up and like the worms attack him and he's like getting choked out and then he like kills them. Does this make him look like a real badass or is this like super cheesy? It was like a like a boa constrictor. Yeah. It like coiled around his arm and around his neck, and then he just sort of like dug his fingers in and killed it. It was it was a kind of an odd scene, and I think it was intended to make him look badass. But I mean, uh, I don't Did know. It? I don't know. I I thought I always I always thought that was kind of a cheeseball way to do it. It reminded me a little bit of, like, Roger Moore and Moonraker. Remember when the Anaconda gets him in, like, the uh, Amazonian, like, temple or whatever it was? Now, he had, like, that little pen thing to escape. But in this situation, I do like that he just kills it with his bare hands. That was pretty cool. And I was almost wondering if maybe they were trying to come up with, like, a gory scene similar to the... Uh, remember the earworms from Wrath of Khan? I was yep. wondering if, like, maybe they were trying to do something like that where it's like, oh, no, it's going to get him. And then the, 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 the trick or the joke of it is is that he, like, just, like, rips it apart. and He's not even scared or anything, um, which, again, uh, is kind of a cool scene. I'm, I'm kind of turning the page on Christopher Lloyd as Courage. Like, as the movie progresses, I find that I like him more and more, and I'm not seeing a lot of those, like, back to the future esque <laughs> moments yeah I'm, I'm, I'm really digging it now one thing I'm not really digging just to kind of maybe switch gears jarringly is man this Sabic stinks I just you don't think like Robin that, Curtis not that I don't like the actress because I never really think that it's the actor's fault I always kind of blame the director but some of the stuff here and it's, it's not even that like Kirstie Alley was like the greatest thing in the world but it just really feels like clunky and kind of bad. And I'm really straining to understand why this had to be Savick, why this couldn't just have been like anybody else. Um, it just seemed like such a strange recasting. And I mean, I don't really know Robin Curtis from a whole lot of other things, but um, I just felt like it wasn't very good. <laughs> In terms of her kind of performance, or I, I found it to be kind of robotic, like almost too Vulcan. Does that make yeah. any sense? Yeah, like, I, I found with Kirstie Alley there was at least some personality, but with with Robin Curtis, it's very robotic and it's almost too Vulcan. It's not that I don't like this version of Savick, but it it almost gets to be distracting at times throughout the movie. I thought especially in this little section here um in this part on the genesis planet everything really feels wooden um and everything feels um i don't know like i, I can't maybe put it to words which is not the best thing when you're hosting a, a podcast but it just felt <laughs> bad um and we also get this like really strange awkward scene with like the teenage spock 
where she's trying to explain to him that he's like having the, his first like pawn far and uh, he's kind of like doing this moany groany stuff. I just don't, oh, like this is the kind of stuff I feel like when people maybe make fun of this movie, this is probably one of the things they would point to. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that scene in particular and maybe just a Savick kind of as a character here? I thought it was interesting that by like rubbing his fingers that like somehow <laughs> calmed somehow, him down or something. Like, you know, subsided the effects of Pon Far, which is known to be a, like a rather potentially rather violent uh, experience, as we've seen in a few Voyager episodes uh, yep. since. Uh, I was that was a very. It was very like I think the word robotic is sort of where I keep going when we want to talk about Savic. It just seemed so. It just seemed very robotic and very uh, deliberate. But is this even something that we necessarily needed to have in the movie? Like, what did this really add? Like, just kind of a ticking clock? I think that was part of it. And I think they have to be accurate, right? Because Ponfar is something that every Vulcan experiences every seven years. And if he's, like, hyper-aging, it's going to happen eventually. And maybe they thought if they didn't put it in there, someone would be like, wait a minute. You know how Star Trek fans are, even back then. Yeah, and I mean, I guess this, like, finger rub thing was supposed to kind of... That was very odd. Very yeah, odd. Yeah, nothing... We never really met... Like, I wonder if maybe they should have mentioned that to Tuvok in that episode of uh, <laughs> Voyager when he doesn't have a mate, and so he's, like, kind of dealing with it, and the doctor prescribes, like, basically to just use the holodeck for sex. Um <laughs> Wasn't there an episode where that Vorik guy also was going yes. through Pond Far? That yeah. would yeah, that was another one that would have been handy. And didn't he like didn't he like ask Bolana or something like, "Hey, yes. I'm doing the I mean, yeah. I think we've all probably been in that situation where, you know, like a pickup line doesn't work, but that's got to be the lowest of the low right there. <laughs> when he yeah, tries and we don't, to like and we, and we don't turn into like murderous violent uh, people when they <laughs> when you get rejected. Down. At least I hope not. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Some people might. But yeah, I mean, maybe that maybe the secret is is you just have to have that like Vulcan like finger touch to calm you down. Um, but uh, I've definitely filed it away, just in case. Yeah, you never know, right? You never know when it, <laughs> when it might have to happen. But um, anyway, enough about the Genesis planet because that is the one thing about this movie so far that has me just kind of a little bit on edge. Um, we get um, we get the uh, Enterprise cruising in, right? So they cruise up to the uh, Genesis planet. What are your thoughts on kind of like the movie warp effects? Do you have a headcanon for why we get like the big rainbow and why we never really see that again or, or prior? Um, or is it just kind of a, a matter of the, the production of the time? Does it bother you at all? No, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I think the the reasoning is that it just looks cool. Um, I, I, to me, it's it's a product of its time. That's sort of how I look at it. I mean, yeah. Would you ever want to see it again in a new age Star Trek or no? Uh, I wouldn't be crazy about it. It's not my favorite, but it it gets the job done. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's just one of those things where it definitely stands out. And 
Um, it, it does look cool, but I don't know that it would look cool like on the Discovery or something, you know? Like, I think that it would probably not play, so it is kind of definitely a, a thing of its time. Um, and anyway, they yes. cruise up to the Genesis planet, and uh, I think that these Klingons maybe need to phone up, like, uh, you know, future Shinzon, because their cloak is not perfect, is it, Matt? They are uh, kind of shimmering on the edges, and, uh, you know, the Enterprise crew kind of smell a rat straight away. Yeah, but it's true, yes. And I like that they explain it, though. It isn't just, like, oh, they need to be able to be tipped off for it to work. They actually kind of explain it, because if you, there's that scene in the Klingon ship where he's, like, you know, transfer all power to weapons, right? And then right. back on the Enterprise, they're like, at that same instant, they're like, I thought I saw something. And so I, I thought it was neat that they did explain it. It wasn't just like Sulu just sort of looks at the screen and is like, wait a minute, is that what I think it is? Right. So yeah. yeah, it was pretty cool. But yeah, yeah, maybe Shinzon needs to uh, go help these guys out. And the other thing too is I always hated that Shinzon perfect cloak nonsense. Because my interpretation of the cloaking devices was not necessarily that it makes you like perfectly invisible, but more just the fact that because space is so big and because everything's so spread out, that if you had something that kind of like, uh, you know, reflected the stars and like kind of refracted around your ship, then it'd be like really hard for sensors and things to pick you up. It'd be really hard to find. But that whole nonsense about the the perfect cloak that can never be found was kind of always pretty stupid. I always liked the idea that you might be able to, like, it just makes it harder to find. Like you could use echo detection and, you know, or infrared the, or whatever. Go look out the window with like a telescope. Right, just to look for like the <laughs> shimmery whatever, right? But yeah. um, you're right, they took the time here to say that, you know, the, the cloak would have been much better, but they've, you know, they've tweaked the, the weapons and that's, of course, created this kind of like um, this problem here. So um, the other thing I like about this is that we don't really get any no nonsense. Like, I mean, it's like no nonsense. Like, oh, look, there they are. Get them. Bust out the nines. Get them, right? Like this is just immediately into a big old blast, which I mean, you're not going to get on your weekly TV show. You're probably not going to get it in the first half of the movie. But now we're kind of pushing into the climax as it were so it's like you know what forget it we're not even gonna bother we did the cloak and ma- or the the cat and mouse game back with wrath Khan. this time it's just going to be a straight up battle and what are your thoughts on that battle it was not your typical battle and i thought that was kind of cool because you've got this the enterprise which is running running on automatic with like whatever five five people on it and you've got this smaller ship that has like a very s- small crew and they kind of disable each other. And then they're sort of like, each of them is like, why haven't they destroyed us? What are they waiting for? Right. And I thought that was kind of neat that it was, it was fairly brief, um, but, but it was kind of neat, especially Krug. He sort of like stands up and he's like, why haven't they finished us? And then they sort of both have to figure out that like, okay, I've, I've, disabled their ship but we're also sort of floating around and then there's a bit of sort of deception as far as like you know Kirk Kirk pretends that his ship is fully crewed and fully manned even though Krug doesn't know that it is and I thought it was pretty neat and then obviously uh, 
you know, Kirk it eventually is able to like outsmart him. But it was kind of neat to kind of see the, the 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 wits, the battle of the wits that sort of went along with it. Yeah, exactly. Which is what the Star Trek has always been known for, right? Like the captains basically being uh, you know, chess masters kind of thing with the with the fighting with the battles. The other thing that I love about this, which we have talked about at length in the past, is that finally we get a scenario where the Enterprise is just the much stronger ship. I think that at one point the Klingons mentioned that they're outgunned ten to one the Enterprise to this particular bird of prey, which is so nice to see. And of course, like you mentioned, we're aware that the enterprise is automated it's only being run by a handful of people which makes it less effective which i thought was actually a beautiful way to kind of tie that whole um tie that whole kind of like confrontation in i also like that the klingons use of the 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 klingon language it seems like in this movie specifically it's way less annoying than like what we get in um, Star Trek Discovery is probably the worst of it, but even like Next Generation, I find that it's like a, maybe a, like a little bit heavy-handed, or they don't do it enough, or they do it too much. This is really like the best version of the Klingon language that I think I can remember seeing. What, what were your thoughts on the way that they did that, and how they back bounced back and forth? Yeah, I thought it was pretty effective because they didn't overuse it. Um, right. There were certain like key moments kind of when they were talking amongst each other where they used the language and uh that was i thought that was pretty uh pretty neat um i i think just the fact they didn't overuse it is really what made it so good because i feel like sometimes they get a little carried away with it in more modern yeah. star trek like when you watch this movie, you can kind of understand why people wanted to like learn Klingon as like an actual language, and like go around speaking it and stuff. Whereas the later incarnations of it, you're like, man, it's just annoying. Like if anybody talked like that, you just want to punch them in the face, right? Like it's <laughs> uh, it's it's kind of cool in this one, and it's almost like exclusive or something. I thought it was pretty well done. I, I I'm sort of thinking just to myself, they mostly spoke Klingon when it was just amongst themselves whereas yeah, if they were much. with a, uh, someone else they would it would be in English so I thought that was kind of neat that they would do it that way to just give you a yeah. more of a sense of like yeah these are like Klingons they're 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 doing their own sort of thing here yeah no they, they did a beautiful job of it really and I think that uh, I almost kind of wish they would do this kind of thing more where they only really speak the basic when they have to, and it's almost like begrudging, and it makes their own language seem that much more cool. One of my friends actually had the Klingon dictionary when uh, we were young. I don't know if he yeah. actually could speak it or learn to speak it, but he, he had the book. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I think Krug, there are Krug people was that... on the cover, too. Krug and his two oh, uh, really? cronies were on the cover. Yeah, yeah, I just oh, remember cool. that. Nice. Good knowledge. Uh, okay, now speaking of Krug, let's get to I guess what would be like the the main event, right? Which is um, David's death, right? So um, this interaction down on the planet is kind of, I guess, supposed to be the the big emotional piece here, the big emotional uh, punch of um, of the of the of the movie. Um, cause, I mean, we haven't really known David for a whole long time. 
we literally learned about him in the last movie so the fact that he's gone in this movie maybe isn't that big of a deal but um i mean kirk definitely seems upset about it so um i mean are, are we following suit do we feel the same way it was interesting to me that he like stepped in because it looked like the Klingon guy was going to actually kill Savick. And then yes. David sort of run, ran and tackled him and ended up on the losing end of that little skirmish. I'm very tempted to say that Kirk's reaction was like a classic William Shatner sort of yeah. overacting. But yep. the way that he kind of like, like immediately kind of collapsed and he didn't quite make it onto his chair, I thought that that kind of hit home just how much that impacted him now i mean the the line that he said you know that was a little bit much but i just the way that it immediately affected him so much that he just sort of like collapsed and and missed his chair or kind of half landed in his chair i thought it was actually not not terrible acting and it's kind of like the chicken or the egg right like did were these the kind of things that led to the whole Shatnerisms or did the Shatnerisms kind of come around and, and this is just one of them? I thought it was an odd choice to have him on the bridge basically just find out, like, basically over the phone. Do you think that maybe he should have, made, like, beamed down and witnessed it or seen it on a viewfinder or something? I, I almost felt like something was slightly lost by the fact that he wasn't there in the moment. I think maybe the reaction would have been more believable if he'd actually seen it. Because, yeah, like like you say, Savick basically is just like, yeah, David's dead. Yeah, again, and <laughs> it's Savick very anticlimactic. Very... <laughs> and and Savick isn't very good in this either. Like, this is actually a scenario where I almost kind of feel like if Savick had been killed, that might have been better in a way. Because I just don't know how much left that she really had to do, you know? Like,. Not much. I don't know. Not much. I guess, but but Kirk wouldn't really care that much either. So that's the other problem. Yeah, I think it is a nice sort of emotional punch to the stomach to have Kirk's son, who we didn't even know existed, uh, you know, two movies ago, get the, you know, end up getting killed. And I mean, I, I don't know. I, I guess not really Kirk's fault or anything, but I guess he never really got that opportunity to, to have that relationship um or have that interaction like they literally just met and i guess he was so keen on getting back to the genesis planet that it's like they never really got to hang out or anything so that part of it is kind of sad yeah yeah it would have been it would have been interesting to see where that would have gone oh you know, yeah if david 100%. had stuck it around for the next couple of movies yeah i mean who knows i guess we'll never know now but um, I mean, from one death to another, uh, David's death is actually somewhat of a uh, appetizer, if you will, uh, because the next death, as it were, um, has to be one of the most ultimate badass, sick movie moments in in the whole franchise history, maybe even beyond just the Star Trek franchise. So, uh, Kirk gets this genius idea that he is going to basically, um, he's basically going to set the self-destruct, surrender, and then <laughs> when they all beam over, they're going to basically blow up with the ship. So um, first things first, they activate the self-destruct. Um, why do they need three people in this particular uh, scenario? Or do they just want Chekhov to feel part of the team? 
because he hasn't yet done anything in this movie. Yeah, that's interesting because going in future Star Trek, they only need two. Um, I mean, there's I think there's a handful of occasions when Picard and Riker activated the self-destruct and they only needed the two of them. So they actually activated the self-destruct in uh, the TOS episode. Let this be your last battlefield. Yes, and it's actually the same code. Same codes, yeah, yeah. Except for I'm assuming that Chekhov was not part of that one because obviously. Well, they gave they gave Spock's codes to Scotty and Scotty's codes to Chekhov. Right. So. But it's the same codes. Um, yeah. Same codes, which is pretty cool. Um, but yes, after this, they assume that only two people need to be around in order to activate it. Um, but anyway, uh, beaming on beaming the Klingons onto the ship and then letting it blow off is like cold as ice. Like, I don't know that that is very Starfleet-esque. It is definitely more, like, badass-esque. Like, it is not something that I think is in the Starfleet protocols by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> but it just, again, goes to show that, like, Kirk, he, he's he's very adept at, like, manipulating situations, you know, to, to his advantage. Um well, he doesn't believe in the no-win scenario. That's exactly right. Yes, he doesn't <laughs> believe in the no-win, so he's gonna he's gonna flip things around and and make it so that he's got a way out. It's a very bold and very daring plan because uh, he has no idea what kind of what's going on on the planet really, and he beams down with no with, now with no ship, conceivably yeah. no way off the planet. Unless he's already thinking like three moves ahead and is like, well, I'll just take the Klingon's ship. Right. Um, I mean, whether that was his plan all along or whether he sort of improvised his way through it, I guess we don't really know. But it is Kirk. Who knows? Maybe in the back of his mind, he was like, we'll just take the Klingon ship to get out of here. Um, but yeah, it's a very it was a very daring plan, I would say, because there's a, you know, any number of things could go wrong with it i mean what if he goes down to the planet and the klingons that are down there are just like oh look humans let's just blow them up let's just blast them you know or even what could have happened with the ship just the planet just breaks apart well exactly like he he had he had no idea what was going on down there really although it does set up maybe one of the best scenes in the movies when the klingons end up on the enterprise and they're like running around being like where are they where are they they must be like hiding and there's that classic scene where they're like, wait, what's that note? What's that sound? And it's like, 13. The computer, oh. the computer, the ship is being run by a computer. It is speaking yeah. to us. <laughs> <laughs> and then Courage is like, wait, go closer. I want to hear what it's saying. And it's like, three. And he knows exactly two. what's going on. He's like, get out of there. Get yeah. out of there. But it's, it's too late. Yeah. And I mean, that is such a great, uh, such, a, such a great moment blows up it's such a such a like i mean it's funny and it's it's badass but then we kind of get the tail end of this which is man like that is the enterprise right like that is the old ncc 1701 that we've had since you know what 1966 all the tv shows and they refit yeah. it for the movies and then they refit it again for you know after the motion picture but like i mean i think we're left to believe this is the same ship you know, oh, yeah. we care it's so much ship. about. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, I think Kirk probably said it best. My God, what have I done? Um, 
yeah, well, I mean, what, do you, what are your thoughts on, on the death of the Enterprise, which really is the marquee death? And I, I know that I remember reading things that, you know, when they did this back in 1980-something, this movie came out in, um, like, people were, like, legit shocked. And I think people were, like, legit sad about it because, um, you know, they had, they had spent a lot of time uh, on this on the ship, right? So what are your thoughts? I think they sort of drew it out a little bit longer than maybe they needed to. <laughs> longer I mean, than generations? <laughs> long, longer than the, like, you know, three-minute flybys in the motion picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. It was pretty, like, there's the whole thing where, like, it shows the ship name and the registry number on the saucer, and it sort of, like, just slowly disintegrates, and then it all just sort of blows up. And then they're watching from the planet as it, like, sort of burns up in the atmosphere. Like, it was yeah, pretty... Yeah, that part was cool. That part was cool. It was cool, but, yeah, they kind of drew it out quite a bit longer than maybe they needed to. <laughs> I mean, I feel like if you Fair activate enough. the self-destruct, like, the ship's just going to go in one big explosion. There isn't going to be all this, like, little yeah, stuff that blows up and then pieces. it sort of burns up in an atmosphere. Like, I don't... <laughs> I don't know if yeah, that's really how true. it typically would go, but I mean, it was a pretty significant, I mean, I, I think for me, because I saw these movies before I really watched the original series, it wasn't really the same impact, but I can only imagine, you know, if you'd watched the show for three years and two movies or two and a half movies, and then all of a sudden the ship blows up, God. I can imagine it would be a bit more of, of a, of an impactful scene. For, for someone in that situation. Did you find the Enterprise D blowing up in generations to be more of a, a you know, gut punch? In a way, yeah, I guess. Because, yeah, I, I'd watched that show for, you know, two and a half, three years. And then in the movie, they blow the ship up. Yeah, it was... But that one was really, really drawn out. Because there's, like, that whole thing where they separate the saucer and they're... Everyone's, everyone's trying to get off the engineering section... And they didn't really, and, it, and it, they didn't activate the self-destruct. They just, you know, the Klingons just got a couple lucky shots, and that was it. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, I'm probably in the same boat as you. I never actually watched the show that much before. Um, and so when it blew up, it's, it doesn't have really the same impact to me um, as, as maybe even just the Enterprise D. I feel like at least in the era before J.J. Abrams, it was pretty rare for these things to happen. Um, those two times being the only two other than like, you know, obviously episodes where it blows up and it's a time loop or something. Um, cause I felt and like effect. Cause and effect, one of the best ones ever. Um, but yeah, I definitely feel like in the, the newer movies, the Enterprise gets way too beat up way too quickly, way too easily. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Definitely a, a piece of cultural history right there when the Enterprise blows up. Um, and just kind of the last thing here when we uh, before we kind of um, go to the, the big climax between Kirk and Courage, what exactly is happening with Spock? Because I don't know that I'm necessarily following. Uh, he's Well, he's hyper-aging, and as he gets older, the planet disintegrates more. Is hard of how I think it's supposed to be. Right, and I guess they're like he's supposed to be linked to the planet now because he was there when it was like created or something, or they're just happenstance. Yeah, it's kind of wishwashy. Okay, well, at least uh, we're both in the same boat. Yeah, that's one part of the movie that kind of irks me a bit is that 
the the link between Spock and the planet it's it doesn't really make a lot of sense because <laughs> yeah well because when they blew up the torpedo right in the nebula during the battle with Khan the planet forms and then they shoot Spock's body in a torpedo case onto the planet shortly after like I don't really understand why he's just sort of like inexplicably linked I think there's just a nice convenient way to say well he's still alive and 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 he he you know and we're gonna have him hyperage so that when the end of the movie rolls around he's back to the old Spock that we had previously but it didn't really make sense why he would have went back to being a baby anyway like uh, no not really you would think that if the being on that planet sort of injected life back into him, it would just be the same old Spock. Right, like continued age from where he's at, but I don't know. I guess it's one of those things where we're just kind of left to be just, just watch and enjoy it kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what happens when you write a script as quickly as they did for this one. <laughs> All right, so let's jump into the Kirk versus urge battle so um they both end up on the planet um and i mean this is essentially the the big showdown um i suppose it's a A big big showdown um it is i don't know it's definitely of the time uh you know when you look at uh you know the star wars movies especially like the newer ones where you're getting these huge lightsaber battles and uh you know, the Matrix and the, the big fight scenes of Jackie Chan movies and stuff. This ain't that. <laughs> um, this is this is some, like, old school, you know, authentic, double-fisted, tomahawk-chop-style fighting, um, which is, is very dated, but I'm not saying it's bad. Um, I actually kind of enjoyed it, um, and I think that, like, the emotional aspect of it was probably right there on point. Um, albeit a little on the cheesy side. The one thing that was very strange to me, and there was always, uh, anytime I thought back to this movie, I always felt like there was something missing from that fight scene. Did you notice there was, like, no music in the background? Yes, I did notice that, and it hurts it a lot. Yeah, it really makes it seem, I almost, I want to say boring. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it. it's just two guys wailing on each other, and there's no... There's no music or to to sort of help you feel, the, you know, the excitement or the 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 peril or whatever. And uh, I don't know, it just it really fell flat to me because of that. It's just two guys wailing on each other, and they're sort of just sort of grunting and sort of rolling around the ground, and everything's going crazy around them. And then, but you don't really feel a whole lot, I don't think. I mean, I kind of chuckle at, you know, and Kirk's got, you know, the guy's like hanging on by his fingernails and Kirk like kicks him in the head a bunch of times and he goes, <laughs> there's a, that terrible effect when he sort of floats down into like the lava pit or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But it just, I, I felt like it would just really fell flat because there wasn't really a lot of, it didn't seem like there was a lot of emotion behind it. It was just two guys wailing on each other. Yeah, and I think it was somewhat of a missed opportunity just kind of speaking of, like the actual ultimate end of Kirk, which is that, you know, if, if Kirk was willing to blow up a bunch of Klingons in the Enterprise, when he's hanging over the cliff, I don't really get why it's like, here, I'll pull you up. It's like, 
Are these guys like directly responsible for your son getting killed? Like, just basically kick him over the edge. Like at this point, what does it really matter? You know, like you've already killed a bunch yeah. of Klingons. Like, might as well finish him. Finish the set. Complete the set here. Yeah, like I didn't really understand that. I almost kind of wish that there would have been a little bit more bloodthirstiness and and almost just coldness. Almost like, um, yeah, like like just ice cold, just like won't help him and just let him fall or even like kick him off. I know that's not really a hero thing to do, but they're kind of making Kirk rebellious outlaw in this one anyway. So I almost kind of think it would have fit better if he just like kicked him in the face and he fell down. It wouldn't have been out of character completely. I don't think. No, I think it would be believable, especially after what had just happened. Right. So, um, but anyway, I mean, the one thing I will say about this fight scene versus what I was just talking about earlier is that I think that the Genesis planet, like all of a sudden looks a little bit better, um, especially as it is um, like breaking apart and like deconstructing. Um, what are your thoughts on the failure of the Genesis planet? I thought they were kind of quick to write it off. I mean, don't you think they would maybe at least say, okay, this didn't work. Maybe we need to study it more. Maybe we need to do a little more just refine our methods but no they're like no this didn't work so no one is ever going to do this again it's like outlawed no one is ever going to pursue this line of research again they just sort of throw everything away and pretend it never happened i thought it was very they were very quick to do that sorry carol marcus your life's work is just going to basically go down the toilet you had one shot and you blew it so uh you know you're done no more research for you no no more genesis planet for you yeah it's it's literally the classic homer simpson you tried and you failed lesson is never try (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's very scientific yeah i um i I, you know what i guess i don't really care that much because i guess maybe not having like a genesis development developed uh, missile makes for better stories in other scenarios but um the Genesis planet is basically done and dusted, right? They, they all kind of beam up to uh, the bird of prey, uh, which they're off and running with. And that's it. I loved, I loved that little scene where they were like struggling to figure out how to, how to fly it. Yes. I did like that. Sc- Scotty. And I think Sulu and Chekhov were like, what does this button do? What does this button do? Where's the, where's the, you know, I thought that was pretty funny. And then Scotty, and then Scotty finally is just like, this or nothing, and he just pushes the one button, and away they go. <laughs> yeah. Now, did you kind of miss Uhura? Like, I feel like you mentioned Scotty and, and Chekhov and Sulu are all kind of doing fun stuff, and, I mean, Spock's not in this one at all, but also Uhura tends to kind of get the shaft here. Um, she's really, really limited, and I felt it, like, right around this point. I was like, man, where is she at? Yeah, she gets, like, one really, really good scene just as they're about to steal the ship. That's and then. It disappears until the very end and just basically sort of shows up out of nowhere. Like, oh, hey, guys, I'm back. Like, I didn't really get why that was unless maybe there was something where she couldn't film for long periods of time or something. That's, yeah, I mean, I hope that's the reason. Yeah, I don't know. I just kind of was missing her a little bit in this uh, in this kind of um, in, in this kind of spot. Um, and, and speaking of uh, missing, we kind of get this reveal that uh, Bones actually misses Spock. And that, uh, you know, he kind of, even though they've had such a curmudgeon-y, uh, you know, grumpier old men style relationship, that he does have at least some affinity for Spock. And 
um, he actually does, in fact, miss him. I don't think that anybody didn't think that that was true already. I don't even know that they needed to include that here. The movie was very interesting because we sort of see a different layer to McCoy and Spock's relationship. Um, maybe getting a little bit ahead, but they're, when they do that sort of reintegration thing on Vulcan, there's they're like, oh, there's a risk to the person carrying the Katra and McCoy like didn't even hesitate he's like oh don't I'll, I'll take the risk right so you you get to see that that you know be beneath all the all the you know jokes and ridicule there there is a an affection and a genuine affection that they that McCoy has for for Spock even though he's constantly cutting him up and making fun of him and and so on <laughs> yeah and I I feel like the one thing about, well, not the one thing, because we've talked about other things, but, um, I mean, after you do away with the Klingons, there's kind of not really anything to do other than to kind of get Spock back, right? Like, I mean, that was obviously the, what was going to happen right from the beginning, right? Once you, you kind of see that, like, trend line. And so we make our way back to Vulcan for this, like, reintegration uh ceremony and we get a little bit of you know a little bit of information on like how it works and it hasn't been done in a long time and like you mentioned there is um there's this whole thing where the actual per carrier of the Katra could be injured um and then it's just kind of like oh yep it worked it's, <laughs> it's all very rushed i kind of felt like not that it's something i really want to delve into but um it's a little flat like i don't know that it has the same well, obviously doesn't have the same uh, impact as the end of Wrath of Khan by any stretch of the imaginations, but um, I just feel like the whole thing is just like a little bit weird. When I was a kid, I used to just not watch this. <laughs> just cutting like this, turn it off. Like, well, or or like, okay, I'm gonna go, you know, pick up my Star Trek action figures and sort of fiddle around with them while this whole thing's going on. Like, it it especially for when you're a kid like you watch it and you're like you don't really totally understand what's going on so and all the fun exciting stuff all the fighting and all the ship battles and stuff yeah, it's all like, that's all done so yeah like when i was young i always just skipped over this either i would like you say turn it right off or that's when you start sort of looking around the room and be like ah, what else can i be doing while this sort of plays out um it is interesting, though, and I think I may have mentioned this in the previous podcast, is that it's it's interesting that there's there's all this sort of like ritualistic part of, of Vulcan culture, you know, them being uh, creatures of logic and, and reason. And I think it was, I think it's interesting in, that they have this sort of ritualistic kind of spiritual side to them as well. It's kind of it almost seems counterintuitive to what they are well i guess that i guess the whole thing is is that this is like an ancient thing that like nobody's done for a long time maybe is that the point i guess and so that's that's like part of the reason why it doesn't like jive with their their whole culture because it's it's like from a period of time where that wasn't the case maybe like that's how long it's been yeah it's kind of a throwback kind of thing I guess that kind of makes sense. Yeah, that was kind of my initial take on it. Um, 
and it's true like we don't really hear a lot about katra and stuff like that um in the tv series or not to my recollection um on voyage or anything like that it, it really is kind of safe for just this one movie it feels i love that gong that the yeah. guy kept hitting that made a sound that was nothing like a gong yeah that was pretty cool. <laughs> it was like a he would like smash it as hard as he could and it'd be like wow 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 not the sound you would expect from a big giant like piece of metal that he's hitting with a mallet as a music lover matt that's probably one of the things you're most excited about for like visiting other planets in like a future time like spacex and all that stuff is going and seeing all the new musical instruments that exist and the different what was any sounds that they, <laughs> they have that would be that would be pretty wild some some extra extraterrestrial musical instruments who knows what they're doing on uh you know rigel 7 <laughs> And then, uh, and then we have Spock back, and I mean, it's it's crazy, crazy, crazy to think about now. Um, like, considering they they like pigeonhole Spock into every possible uh, new piece of Star Trek that exists today, um, it is insane to think that at this period of time, at the height of Star Trek mania that they would do a Star Trek movie that does not have the most popular character in it. Um, the only thing that I can think that even comes close is basically, um, you know, in the Star Wars reboot movies where uh, they basically spend that whole movie looking for Luke Skywalker and he's in it for like 20 seconds at the end. Um, <laughs> that is the yep. only comparable thing that I can really come up with uh, with respect to to how bold of a move this was was at the time. Yeah, definitely. Um, I did like sort of that at the beginning they show his face, and he seems like he doesn't remember anything. And then as he's sort of a few seconds later, as he's like walking away, he sort of looks back, and it's like it's you can sort together. of see the wheels starting to turn in his head yeah i thought that was kind of neat that they gave you that sort of moment where it's like oh no does he not remember anything and then you know right away it sort of reverses itself and yeah that's a pretty it, it is a pretty bold move to not have a minute until the last you know whatever it was two or three minutes um yeah very very bold move uh to wait that long and this one definitely has the most like TV style ending where we get like the very television kind of sounding music and like uh, Uhura and Bones and everybody's like, oh, welcome back, Spock. And they're all like patting him on the back and then it's like credits. Yeah. That is like a very TV of a certain period of time kind of ending, right? Where you you're gonna get like and especially like the look on their face where they're like oh yeah spock's back guys woohoo um was was i mean i'm not saying it's, i disliked it or that it was bad but um you just don't see movies ending like that anymore at all yeah the only thing that was missing was like this sort of stinger line you know like they used to do which we've i think talked about when we've reviewed original series and animated series episodes where you know Kirk or whoever will have that one sort of line where it's just the the, the one capper line to yeah that's that's really all Fox saying something like that last mission nearly killed me 
or something like that. <laughs> that was the only thing yeah, it was missing. Yeah, exactly. But um, yeah, and that's it. We uh, we get our credits, and obviously Leonard Nimoy is now back in its rightful place, uh, right behind William Shatner, and the search for Spock is over. They found him. All right, Matt, as is customary on uh, RTR, we usually like to kind of go through the cast and say what we uh, thought of each of the kind of main characters and actors, and we'll hit some productions, and then uh, we'll put a bow on this one. So, I mean, obviously, we can kind of keep this short because we've talked about a lot of these people, but um, let's kind of go through. What are your thoughts on Shatner and Kirk in this particular movie? Well, there was like minimal overacting, I would say. Uh, we mentioned the scene where he finds out that David was killed and he sort of, I think, ham that up a little bit. But um, I, I, I like that, you know, they really sort of focused on his loyalty to Spock in this movie. I thought it was, it came through pretty well. I mean, you know, Kirk was willing to do some pretty crazy stuff to go find Mr. Spock, so... Overall, I thought it was, you know, I thought he was pretty good in this movie. Yeah, I would agree. I think that this is kind of like not the last version of Spock where he, or Kirk, sorry, where he's really, really good. Um, but it is, it, you know, this is kind of getting near the end of where he's really good. And then he starts to kind of get into the, the Shatnerisms and, and, and some of the, like, the cheesiness. <laughs> um, that will come, you know, in a couple of movies' times. But um, right now, I would say that, uh, you know, we're still getting kind of top-quality Shatner. And uh, I think that, yeah, the only one is probably The Death of David, which, I mean, I think I can probably accept just because it's a lot of emotions for him under a very short period of time. And his acting at the beginning of the movie, like we talked about, was so good that I think it's a pass um, for me. So um, next up is uh, Spock, which I didn't write everybody down, but we get a variety of them. We get kind of baby Spock, teenage Spock, young adult Spock, and then eventually we get Leonard Nimoy Spock. Um, there's not a lot here, um, but uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the various incarnations of, of Spock that we get? Decent, I guess. They weren't horribly bad. Uh, or distractingly bad they were they were there he was there and do you have kind of like a particular favorite version or is it just going to be Leonard Nimoy because I mean that's the only one that really matters no favorites just it's nice to see him back at the end yeah I don't know that I even feel like I needed to see the early versions of Spock anyway I almost wonder if they could have just maybe got the body and brought it back. This whole side plot where he's like aging didn't really work for me anyway. So um, I don't know that uh, I even needed it. So uh, let's go on to uh, DeForest Kelly and, and Dr. McCoy. We've talked a lot about him, but um, he kind of has the duo role here where he's playing uh, himself, obviously, McCoy, but also playing the, uh, the Katra as well. I thought he did a, a tremendous job being Spockified McCoy. Like there was a lot of moments that were just spot on what you would expect, and yeah, DeForest Kelly really, uh, really played it well. I thought. Yeah, it was a big ask, and I mean, he just knocked it out of the park. So, um, top marks to DeForest Kelly. I mean, if you if you can't already say enough good things about him, it's just another thing to add to the mix. Um, 
but yeah, top drawer stuff. Um, Uhura we talked about. I feel like we could have probably seen more of her. I would love to see more of her. She has basically one really great scene, and then you spend the rest of the time wondering where she's at. So that was somewhat unfortunate, but I guess that is what it is. So um, on to Montgomery Scott and James Duhon, good old Canadian boy, as it were. Um, what are your thoughts on Scotty in this one? Uh, the curmudgeoniness at the beginning with regards to the Excelsior was hilarious. Uh, <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> and otherwise, you know, he did his job, you know, kept the ship in one piece uh, for as long as they needed him to. And yeah, he was, he was solid. Yeah. And you know what? I think that we might kind of get into a, a kind of like a little run here because like for me, Scotty, Sulu, Chekhov, they are just solid. At this point, they know the character inside, outside. They know, you know, the, the little intricacies. And basically what we're getting from each of them is just kind of like what you would expect. Like solid, uh, excellent performances of characters that are beloved and, uh, you know, kind of well-performed. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Sue and Chekhov don't really do much in this. They're just sort of along for the ride. Um, but yeah, like, like you said, they both know those characters inside and out, and they they did it all right. They were. I, I really like the part where uh, Sulu, uh, when they're breaking McCoy out, he like like knocks that guy out or whatever, and then he's like, "Don't call me tiny." Yes, that was <laughs> that, that was good. Everybody yeah. gets at least one solid scene in here, for sure. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's really all it is. I mean, this is really a story about Kirk and McCoy seeking after their, their good pal, Mr. Spock. Yes, I would agree. So why don't we kind of shift gears and go to, um, I guess, I mean, Christopher Lloyd is the, is the main bad here. Um, and, and really is, is the only one that is worth talking about unless you really want to talk about some of the minor uh, Klingon characters. But what are your thoughts on Christopher Lloyd and uh, the big bad? I thought he did a pretty good job um, playing this sort of power-hungry Klingon captain that seemed to have no allegiance to the Klingon Empire, just sort of did what he wanted which we kind of talked about already. And uh, I thought that the casting choice was pretty good. I thought he played a pretty convincing Klingon. The one thing I read that I was kind of shocked at was that Edward James Almost, who is probably best known as Commander Adama on Battlestar Galactica, he was actually, I think, their first choice for Krug. Oh, really? And I don't know if I can see it. I don't know if I can see it. Now, I mean, he may have been, you know, I I feel like he was maybe a different person back in the 80s than in the 2000s when I'm more accustomed to seeing him. But I have a really hard time picturing Commander Adama as a Klingon, a a power-hungry Klingon. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where I feel like I would probably say the same thing about, you know, I don't know that I could see Christopher Lloyd playing a Klingon, but as this movie goes on, it just kind of wins you over, right? Like certain actors just have that ability that they can, um, you know, they can play roles that you wouldn't expect. And so, I mean, we're not going to, 
we're not going to see what that would have been like, but definitely is interesting to think like what you know what what could have been or what would have been. Um, yeah, I definitely yeah. feel like from from my perspective. Christopher Lloyd is not somebody that I normally would think of as a, being a Klingon, and early on I found it really hard to uh, <laughs> to kind of to, to unsee it. But then by the end, I was I was right on point. So I mean, um, I don't know that he's my favorite Klingon of all time because we're going to get a couple of really heavy hitters in the next uh, couple movies here. But um, yeah, I definitely think that it's way better than i remember that's that's another way of putting it as well all right then. okay let's move on uh i mean robin curtis is savic just terrible like i i don't know that we need to delve too deeply into this but um well we already kind of did yeah it i just <laughs> thought she was bad and uh merrick buttrick what a name um uh david i mean pretty much the same as Wrath of Khan, really. I mean, I don't know that he does anything super spectacular here other than save Savick. And, I mean, for me, they're serviceable, but um, I, I really kind of feel that, um, yeah, Savick was, was kind of a notch below for sure. What are your thoughts on those two characters? Well, like I said, Savick was a bit too robotic and maybe a bit of a hyper-Vulcan as far as, like, mannerisms and how she spoke and it was a little it's a little disappointing um I, david i always i thought that he was pretty good um i thought that the way that the actor brought some of kirk's qualities through was 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 pretty well done um kind of subtly right because he wasn't really raised by kirk so those qualities maybe wouldn't be as as uh as evident but they were there which i thought was kind of neat that they did they really did it in both movies i think yeah i would say that that's uh that's a fair point as well so um i mean that kind of rounds out the characters unless there's somebody else that you wanted to really uh you know delve more deeply into no I, I, that's really it i mean most of the other characters were just sort of one-offs right okay well then let's uh let's kind of move over to some production stuff Oddly enough, this is a movie where there's not a whole ton of um, production stuff to find. Like, considering it's a movie, sometimes there's, like, so many little things here. But um, I, I definitely didn't find much. Did you find anything good? Uh, I got a handful of interesting things. There wasn't really much out here. And I think it maybe just is because the movie is so old. Maybe. Um, just really quickly, we already mentioned the Destruct sequence. Uh, was exactly the same as the one used in the Let This Be Your Last Battlefield. The command codes were the same. They just kind of shifted them to different people, which is... That's kind of cool. Yeah, nice little attention to detail, I suppose. Uh, there were a bunch of rocks during the fight scene between Kirk and Krug that were supposed to shoot up from the ground. Um, but only one of them actually worked. Like when the, the day came when they went to shoot it, only one of them actually worked. Which oh. I don't know if that really would have made it any better because it, it was kind of cheesy that one Water thing, just sort of like shooting up out of the ground. I don't know. I don't know if you noticed this. I definitely didn't. Uh, but there is a, uh, a a couple of tribbles make a brief appearance in the bar scene. I did not see that at all. No, I'm gonna have to go back and 
watch that frame by frame. Uh, and an interesting little piece of set uh, trivia here, the, uh, the bridge of the USS Grissom was actually the Enterprise bridge set with the, uh, the captain's chair like just like spun around. Okay, that's kind of one way of doing it, isn't it? Yeah, I guess. Why not? Just sort of flip it around. Yeah. Um, all right, and as we have done historically, well, we should also take a look at the deleted scenes. There's not much here. Um, there was a scene with Kirk and the McCoy in a, a turbo lift, um, which uh, you can see on a like comic adaptation of the movie, um, but was, was cut. Um, there's not really a whole ton as to um, like what it was going to be part of um, or, or what they were going to talk about, but it was cut anyway. Um, there was a scene that was originally scripted where the Enterprise crew were going to be the ones to cut carry Spock up the stairs. Like, you remember when they went up to um, do the, uh, the ceremony thing? Uh, but then eventually they changed it so that it would be the, uh, the Vulcans that did that. And lastly, but not least, there was a shot uh, where they had all these extras for when the bird of prey lands on Vulcan. Uh, where everybody's gonna like run down and stuff like that and then um i guess they had to cut it out because of um i don't know quality of the print or something like that um apparently it was supposed to look really cool um and uh you know they were really excited because there was so many people and there was a lot more spectacle to the arrival of spock um but then uh it just ended up kind of costing too much and it mm. ran late, and they, and they just kind of got rid of it. So um, that's it. That, that Those are all the deleted scenes. There's nothing really too exciting there at all. Hmm, interesting. All right, and I mean, with that, I guess we might as well... Um, I guess we might as well put a bow on this one. Uh, my popcorn container is basically empty. I've just got a couple of kernels down there. <laughs> so, uh, Matt, why don't you give me your most memorable or your favorite scene, uh, which could involve a quote as well. Um, and then uh, give me a score out of five Hatras. Uh, the bar scene, which we talked about in the previous podcast, was was pretty pretty neat, pretty cool. And um, I have a favorite line from that scene, and that's when uh, the security this guy sits down next to McCoy after McCoy's trying to like clandestinely plan a trip to the Genesis planet, and he. He goes, uh, can I offer you a, a ride home, Dr. McCoy? And he and McCoy goes, uh, where's the logic in offering me a ride home, you idiot? If I wanted a ride home, would I be trying to charter a space flight? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was yeah, very Spocky and McCoy right there. Um, as for sort of wrapping this up quickly and giving a score, um, this one's kind of a tricky one for me because the nostalgia factor for me is pretty high because as i mentioned in the previous podcast i've watched this movie a lot and i watched it when i was very young so it's always got kind of got a soft spot for it um i think i'm gonna give it three cotras out of five it certainly gets a passing grade for me i certainly enjoyed watching it even now several years later um it's a there's 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 enough there to keep you going it's it's not super long so you're not checking your watch you know, after a while to see how much longer there is. I, I think it's a pretty, pretty decent movie. I mean, there are certain aspects of it and certain parts of it that weren't so good and that were maybe a little bit cheesy, but overall, I think it's, I think it's a pretty good movie that maybe gets a bit of an unfair rap. 
Yeah, and I mean, I would agree. Um, I, I think that, like, I would give it a three out of five Katras as well. Just if I'm talking about movies alone. Um, if you start comparing this to the TV shows, it really gets muddled and, and very difficult to, to kind of make that comparison. But um, from a, like, straight, you know, just straight comparing two movies, um, this for me is, is totally a three out of, out of five as well. As well. Um, there are a ton of great lines here and, and, and a great, ton of great moments. Um, I love how much Scotty hates the Excelsior. Um, I love <laughs> that he says that if his grandmother had wheels, she'd be a, a, a shopping cart or a wagon or whatever it would be. Um, I, I, I love that scene where they blow up the Enterprise and uh, the Klingons go and he's like, wait, the computer is talking to us. And they go in, and it's like three, two, get out of there. That's a, a legendary, um, uh, you know, line as well. Um, I think for me, I'm, I'm gonna kind of take like the cheesy, uh, you know, I'm gonna take the cheesy one out, and uh, I'm gonna say the, the the destruction of the Enterprise um, and Kirk's, my God, what have I done? I, I think that. Um, that's probably the most memorable thing to me anyway, and I think that's probably my favorite favorite little piece, my favorite little bit. Um, this movie gets way too much flack. Way, way, way too much flack. This is a great movie. No, it's not as good as Zarathacon. No, it's probably not as good as some of the other, uh, you know, favorites in your movie catalog, but it's a damn good movie, and I think that the couple of things that are bad really don't uh, don't doesn't spoil the whole thing um, and so um, I would say that yeah this is a three out of five but man it's an enjoyable watch and uh, I had a great time uh, reviewing it here uh, for RTR as well all right Matt and just like that season three of random Trek review is officially in the books We've had some. We've had some laughs. We've had some some cries. We've had some <laughs> some flip arounds or reversals. Some five some out rage. of five. Some rage. We've had it all here, um, and uh, now we're done through our third movie version. And uh, I guess it's true what they say: time flies when you're having fun. Absolutely, it's been a wild and uh, roller coaster ride of a third season, and um, hopefully the fourth season will be much the same. And now, Matt, if only there was something coming up where we could maybe, like, celebrate our accomplishments and talk about uh, the year that was uh, as crazy as it's been uh, and, and maybe even uh, draw an episode for season four. If only there was something like that coming up, Matt, we would be able to uh, kind of prep the, the, the people for it. Well, I sure hope there is. I mean, I got a big box of party hats and noisemakers here. I hope that... Uh that uh, they're not there just to take up space. I want to use them. Well, considering it is going to be RTR's third birthday, I think it's only fitting that the next time that you guys see us, we will be in full party mode. We are going to do our end of the year <laughs> trivia competition bonanza. We will uh, look at uh, who won this season of RTR, and we will prep you for not only... Uh, the next kind of batch of Star Trek shows that are coming out, but also for the season of RTR, as well as um, 
whatever else may be coming down the line. So that will be the next time that you guys see us, which will be close to the birthday of RTR. So um, contact your local baker and get a <laughs> RTR cake ready. Exactly. I know that we will. No doubt. We, we typically do. We usually end up in a little bit of a sugar coma by the time that we're done. But uh, yeah, make sure that you get your studying done there, Matt, because uh, this year I am going to be coming for the RTR Trivia Crown. Uh, I typically lose, but this year I'm going to study. I'm going to basically treat it like it's a, a medical school exam. I'm going to be watching lots of episodes, watching lots of movies, <laughs> and uh, we will uh, we'll be able to... Tr- challenge each other next time on RTR. Just don't make any uh, mistakes like Bashir did on his uh, medical (laughs) exam. He could have been first in his class. Could have been. It could have been. All right, folks. Well, that's it for us here on RTR. We will be back next time with the birthday bonanza, and then we'll be back in the fall for more Star Trek goodness and season four. So until then, bye-bye, everybody, and happy birthday, RTR. So long, folks. We'll see you for a big bash shortly. This show is brought to you by Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Sweet Media programs. Loading Sweet Preview Program 4, The Janeway, a Star Trek Voyager podcast. Yeah, so then he replays the last entry on the computer, and it's Janeway saying that they need to abandon ship. Uh, I have issue with this. Okay. Because it's it's a captain's log, whatever. Mm-hmm. When is she ever, like, standing in front of a camera giving a captain's log? This is Captain Janeway for BBC News. <laughs> I mean, she's clearly on the middle of the bridge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's recording her at this point? Chakotay, hey, get the emergency camera rig. <laughs> <laughs> Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4. The Sci-Fi Feminist, a feminism and pop culture podcast. So um, she has makeup on, but it's bright red with black like eyeshadow and like long talon nails. And I was so happy to see Corella Deville did have her talons because even in the 101 Dalmatians film, something that's very prominent, oh, I think it's 102 Dalmatians, when she tur- turns back to an insane person, like her shoulder pads come out of nowhere and her nails grow. And I'm just like... That's that's the female grotesque. Like you take this normal woman who is feminine and then you're like doublets and then add talons. Computer deactivate Holosuite.